some parts of the Bible are really clear. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 verse 1, that's clear. Salvation is found in no one but Jesus, Acts chapter 4. That's clear. But these two portions of Scripture that were read for us, the first, a strange and frankly somewhat dark and disturbing episode involving Noah and his sons, and the second, a list of who lived where, when in the ancient world, what are these about? Much less clear. Difficult to figure out what the author wants us to hear. And I bet that most of you, hearing the reading, thought, what on earth is the point of that long list? The story of Noah and his boys is a bit troubling. Something, it's not 100% clear what, but something disturbing, something troubling happened there. Even so, we get it, we get the story. But that long list, why is that there? Couldn't an editor have taken it out? Do we really need that information? Well, I wonder if Moses' original audience asked those same questions. Actually, to be honest, I suspect they would have had just the opposite problem. This long list of tribal geography we get, this makes sense to us. But what's this thing about Noah's boys about? Why are you telling us this, Moses? What are we supposed to be hearing in this story? And what do you want us to do about it? Remember, to a homeless nation, as Israel was at the time when Moses was teaching them this, to a homeless, displaced people, this tribal geography lesson makes sense. So let's start by reminding ourselves of where, historically speaking, where this episode happens. Not the episode with Noah and his sons, but the telling of it by Moses to the people of Israel. The Israelites have been walking through the desert for decades, and as they journey towards their promised land, so Moses has been teaching them, reminding them of who they are, of who their God is, of what their destiny is. You remember that almost 500 years before this, the sons of Jacob had left Palestine and gone south to Egypt to escape a severe and extended famine. In Egypt, they became a slave nation, cruelly oppressed by a succession of pharaohs. 430 years in slavery. After 430 years in Egypt, God, by the leadership of Moses, rescued them, delivered them, then for 40 more years they've journeyed through the wilderness as God has prepared their hearts to go home. Back to Palestine. Back to the home prepared for God, by God, for Adam and Eve. The home they forfeited in the great fall. The home promised again to Abraham and his descendants. The home left behind by their forefathers in the famine. The home they've been told about for almost 500 years. You see, home, a place to belong, is what they've not had. It's what their parents died without knowing. It's what their grandparents longed for. To most of us here today, home is such a settled reality in our lives that we don't even notice the security it provides. But to the homeless, to the displaced, to the exile, the refugee, home and the longing for home, is everything. So as Moses gives this lesson in tribal geography, what did he want them to hear? 
that they were not homeless wanderers. They had a home, a place to belong, and not just any home, but a home prepared for them and promised to them by the God who is sovereign over all the nations of the earth, even over their enemies. And in this home, they were called to live a certain way. They were not wandering refugees. They were the chosen people of the sovereign God, and they had a great and a glorious destiny. So Moses teaches them, first, that God is sovereign. God reigns, the great king over all the earth and over all the nations of the earth. Second, that they are his people, God's people, chosen by him to be his very own. And third, that being his, they are to live a certain way. So that's where we're going this afternoon. First, God reigns. Second, you, dear Christians, are his people. And third, now live as his people. So first, God reigns. Well, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. All three were born before the great flood. All three went into the ark with Noah. And all three came out of the ark with Noah. Now, who were these sons? Well, Shem was the father of Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel. Not directly, I think I count nine generations later, but Shem is the line to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the twelve tribes of Israel, to whom Moses is now speaking. Ham was the father of Cush, Egypt, and Canaan. And who were these in relation to Israel? Well, they've just spent 430 years in slavery in Egypt. Generation after generation after generation of their forefathers died in Egypt. Egypt is not, to Israel, just some name on a list. Egypt is a powerful enemy who has oppressed them for centuries, even at one time slaughtering all their baby boys. Egypt was pain, suffering, slavery, xenophobia, infanticide. Egypt was not just a name on a list. And Canaan? Well, the Canaanites are the inhabitants of the land they're about to enter. Their own promised land. The Canaanites stand between them and their home, the home they've longed for for 500 years. Canaan, to Israel, is not just some name on a list. What about Cush? Well, they didn't know it yet, but from Cush would come Nimrod and the Babylonian and Assyrian empires who would later conquer Israel many centuries later, exiling them from their homeland. These names are not just names. To you and me, this list reads as nothing more than who lived where when. It's no more interesting than a telephone directory of a 100 years ago from a foreign country. But to Israel, these names and places are the whole world in relation to them. These are the names of cruel oppressors of their past, the powerful adversaries of today, and the threat of tomorrow. These names are kings and pharaohs, conquerors and armies. And who are they? Just a tribe of landless nomads, homeless herdsmen. But who is their God? 
Their God is the God who spared all these nations in the ark. All these nations, Egypt, Canaan, Cush, Nimrod, Assyria, Babylon, God spared them all in the sons of Noah in the ark. During the plagues, back when he was rescuing Israel from Egypt, God said to Pharaoh, I could have stretched out my hand and wiped you off the earth. Exodus chapter 9. I could have wiped you off the earth, but I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God was not scared of Egypt or of Pharaoh and his armies. He is God who made the heavens and the earth. Isn't it true that we, even we who are his own, tend to domesticate God? We want a comfortable God whose main job is to comfort us. But he is not a comfortable God. He is terrifyingly powerful. He is the God who says to Pharaoh, the most powerful man at this time in history that the world had ever known, I could wipe you off the earth. But more, so powerful is God that he chooses not to annihilate Pharaoh, but to use him and his empire and his armies to display to all the world by utterly defeating them at the hands of unarmed slaves, most of whom were women, children, and grandparents, that he is the all-powerful God, God who reigns, God who reigns over his people Israel, God who reigns over Egypt and Pharaoh, God who reigns over the enemies of his people. He is God who kept Egypt alive. In Ham, the son of Noah, on the ark. God could have wiped Egypt out before Egypt even existed. But no, he kept Egypt alive. He spared Egypt in the ark. Why? I have raised you up for this very purpose. That I might show you my power and my name be proclaimed in all the earth. God is jealous for his own glory and showed himself glorious over Pharaoh, glorious in judgment and glorious in salvation. And God gave Israel victory in Canaan for the glory of his name. So says the prophet Samuel. Who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name, that is, displaying his own glory, making himself a name, and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out the Canaanites before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt. And God later restored Israel from exile for the glory of his name. As the prophet Ezekiel wrote, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. And the nations will know that I am the Lord. Over all the earth, the Lord God reigns. Moses lists 70 nations here in chapter 10. 70, seven tens, meaning all the people of the earth. He is God over Israel. He is God over all the nations of the earth. Over all the sons of Ham, the line of the serpent, if you remember from earlier in Genesis. Over all the enemies of God's people. Over Egypt, over Canaan, over Cush, over Nimrod, over Assyria, over Babylon. The God of Israel reigns. 
God reigns. And he will be glorified in both the salvation of his elect and in the judgment of his enemies. You are not homeless refugees, Moses is saying to Israel. You are the chosen people of the God who reigns over all the earth, even over his enemies. You are the elect of God, God who does all things for his own glory. And he has chosen to display his glory in saving you. Fear not. Why would you fear Egypt? God can wipe Egypt off the face of the earth. Why would you fear Canaan? God will drive them out before you. Why would you fear kings and armies? Israel, your God, will have his glory. And that means your salvation and the defeat of all his enemies. So first, what Moses is doing here is reminding them who their God is. Second, Moses reminds them who they are. They are the children of Shem. The children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are Israel. They are God's people. And they became God's people not by any special virtue of their own. They became God's people because God freely, in grace, made a covenant, a promise, that he would be their God and they would be his people. And when he rescued them from Egypt, he did so on the terrible night when the angel passed through the land, executing God's judgment, and they were spared only because of the blood of the lamb. The unblemished lamb, one per household, that was killed and its blood spread on the doorposts and the lintels, And as the angel passed through Egypt that night, they sheltered under the blood of the unblemished lamb, trusting in the mercy and the grace of their saving God, even as they heard the screams of his enemies on whom judgment fell that night. You are his, Moses is telling them. You are his people. You are the line of Shem, the children of Abraham, the people of the promise. You are those who sheltered under the blood of the Lamb. You are the children of mercy. And God, the same God who reigns over all the earth, executing judgment on his enemies and showing mercy to his people, God has provided us too a Lamb, a Passover Lamb under whose blood we too may shelter. You have been redeemed, says the word of God, with precious blood the blood of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. In Christ, you, Christian, you are his people. The God who reigns is your God. Now live as his people. In the land the Lord God is giving you, in the long-promised land, you, his chosen whom he has rescued from the slavery of sin and Satan, his own, redeemed with the precious blood of his Son, you who have sheltered under the cross to find mercy, now live as his people. And in this passage, I believe that means three things. It means live in the world as a light to the world for the salvation of the lost, shaped by grace. So let's look briefly at each of these. First, live in the world. Seventy nations, seven 
tens of nations. This is an ancient writer's way of saying all the world. Seventy nations are described here in this passage. And where did God put his people? Right in the middle. You probably can't um, see that from where you are, but more or less in the center of the screen, there's a small little box. That's where they were going. That was God's home for them. Now, the descendants of Ham settled mainly in North Africa and the Arabian Peninsula. The descendants of Shem in the Arabian Peninsula, Palestine and the Near East. And the descendants of Japheth in the southeastern Mediterranean, extending from the borders of what is now Greece, uh, eastward to the Caspian Sea. And God put his people, his chosen, right in the middle, between the great ancient empires of Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon, in the very center of the world, God put a witness to himself for the salvation of all. And how do we know that was his purpose? Well, two ways. First, Jesus tells us. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out his disciples to the surrounding Samaritan villages to preach the good news that in him the kingdom of God has come. There is salvation for all who will repent and believe. And how many does he send out? Seventy. Now, your translation may say seventy. It may say seventy-two. Manuscript evidence is pretty much 50-50 on this. But either way, scholars and commentators have long seen this as an intentional connection. Jesus knew his Old Testament history. He knew this table of nations, as Genesis chapter 10 is called. He knew there were 70 nations, and 70 meant the whole world. So he sent out 70 disciples, 70 messengers, with the message of his kingdom come. Second reason we know God's purpose in placing Israel at the crossroads of the ancient world, look with me um, from verse 26 of Genesis chapter 9. Uh, Noah has woken from his drunken sleep, discovered what his sons have done, and after cursing Ham, he says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. Well, we'll come uh, to what happened in a minute that caused the curse. But notice first, may Japheth live in the tents of Shem. Now, who is Shem? Shem is the line to Abraham, to Israel. And who is Japheth? Japheth is the line of the Gentile nations. This is really important. Shem, you see verse 26, Shem is the line whose God is the Lord. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, Yahweh the God of the covenant, the God Moses has been teaching Israel about since chapter 1, verse 1. God who created the heavens and the earth. God who prepared a home for his people, who pursued Adam and Eve in grace after they sinned. Who promised a serpent crusher from their line. Who promises to avenge the blood of Abel. Who elected in grace the line of Seth. Who so loved the the faith of Enoch that he took, him, he took him home alive forever. Who saved righteous Noah and his sons. Who made the greatest of all promises to Abraham. 
I am God Almighty, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your children for an everlasting covenant to be God to you. Yahweh is the God of his people, the God of the covenant, the God of Shem. May God enlarge Japheth, and may Japheth live in the tents of Shem. May the nations of Gentiles fill the earth, and may they live in the tents. May they dwell under the shelter of the God of Shem. May the Gentiles know Yahweh as their God too. And how would Japheth, how would the Gentiles come to know Yahweh? Well, they were to live a certain way. They were to live as people shaped by grace. They were to live holy lives. And that brings us back to the somewhat troubling story of Noah and his sons. What happened? What happened? Well, there are... um, a good number of ways that interpreters and commentators deal with what happened here. Um, There are two that I find uh, most persuasive. I can't say for certain it's this way or it's that way. I would say these two seem to me to be well-grounded interpretations. The one is to say that what Ham did um, uncovered the saw and saw the nakedness of his fathers and told his brothers. Some say that's kind of a um, polite way of saying something else. It's code word for something else. Um, If you look in Leviticus 18, and again, depending on your interpretation, the wording may be slightly different, but in the ESV, if you look through Leviticus 18 from verse 3, God says to Israel, "'You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt.'" where you lived, and you shall not do it as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their ways. You shall follow my ways, keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You will keep my ways. If you do, you will live by them. I am the Lord. And then he goes on, for more or less the rest of chapter 18, to describe a whole list of sexual sin. And all of them use the same phrase. For example, none of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You will not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. You will not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is yours. You shall not uncover the nakedness of etc., etc., etc. It's the same phrase, to uncover the nakedness of. Now, it might be that what's happening here in uh, Genesis chapter 9 with Noah is that Moses is using this phrase in a similar way, to say Ham did something which which Moses is treating politely by saying he, he saw and uncovered his father's nakedness. Commentators range from saying he castrated his father to he sodomized him to um, Ham slept with his father's wife. All of those can be backed up biblically. We can see precedent. We can see reasons to say that's a reasonable way of interpreting that. But we can't say for sure. 
Another way of interpreting it is to say, is to pay more attention to the distinction, the difference between how Moses describes uh, Ham's behavior and the behavior of the other two sons. So what we see there is Ham saw his father's father's nakedness, went and told his brothers. In other words, Ham was happy to expose his father's shame. He was happy to disgrace his father. He was happy to expose his father to ridicule. The other two sons, Shem and Japheth, in chapter 9, verse uh, 23, Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Now you can imagine the awkwardness of this situation. These two brothers are told about their father's state. They take a a blanket, put it over one shoulder, over the other, and they're walking backwards, trying not to trip over tent pegs, trying to get into the tent, trying to make sure the blanket lands on father and presumably mother with him without seeing anything. The, The author goes to some pains here to describe quite a deliberate, quite a careful um covering of their father's shame. And so perhaps what he's drawing attention to here is to say that what it means to to live this way is to be um, somebody who does not expose the shame of others. Ham here represents the line of the serpent that we've seen earlier in Genesis. The serpent who wants to destroy God's people. The serpent who delights in sin. The serpent who is happy to live his life apart from God, shall I say the line of the serpent, happy to live their lives apart from God, as opposed to the line of God, who in response to grace that they have received, want to extend that grace to others, want to be those who cover sin, want to be those who honor their father and their mother, want to be those who live in a grace-filled way. So we can't really be sure exactly what Moses is trying to tell us in this incident with Noah and his sons. What exactly is it that was so bad? Is it that um, Ham did some awful thing that is described in a polite way? Uh, Or is it this difference between graceful covering of sin, honoring of your father and mother, versus the disposition to shame and to expose. Both of those are consistent with the rest of Scripture. Both can be solidly argued. And in the end, I don't think that we need to choose between the two. I think they're perfectly reconcilable with one another. For to respond to grace, to respond to the prior grace of God, is to live a holy life. And that means living a certain way towards others. It means respecting your parents. It means honoring your father and mother. It means not delighting in the sin of others. It means a disposition to cover, to protect, to show grace, not to show disgrace. I think Moses' point here is he is reminding Israel of who God is. God is so powerful. Their God is the sovereign God who reigns not only over Israel, but over all the nations of the earth, even over his enemies, even through history, through generations, directing where they live and when they live. 
even over his enemies, for his glory. He is their God. God who made a covenant with them. God who promised. God who protected them from the angel under the blood of the Lamb. And in response, we are called to live a certain way. We are called to live in the center of the world, in the eyes of the world, at the crossroads of culture, where everybody passes us and sees what we do and how we live. We live in such a way as to point people to God. Let Japheth live in the tents of Shem. How do we do that? By living holy lives. By following the ways of God. By being wholeheartedly devoted to God, to His ways, to righteousness. By being gracious people. People who delight in seeing others come to know God. In seeing the sins of others covered under the blood of Christ. People who will go out of our way, as Shem and Japheth did, to cover others, to make an effort to bring others the gospel, the good news, the covering of the blood of Christ. In the end, God will be glorified in both judgment and salvation. God is jealous for his glory and will be glorified in the salvation of his people and, ultimately, in the judgment of all his enemies. To bow your hearts with me as I pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for your word, for this word, the Bible, that you have inspired by your Holy Spirit, that you have preserved through the centuries and the ages for our instruction, for our edification, for our comfort, ultimately to instruct us in the way of salvation, to lead us to Christ, to lead us to the Lamb without blemish, under whose blood we shelter to tell us of yourself, the great God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the God whose power and sovereignty is so great, so unrivaled, so ultimately unchallenged that you even make your enemies serve your glory and our good. Father, would you by your spirit be at work in our hearts? to help us to live in such a way as to point the world around us to to the grace that you have shown us in Christ. Help us to live holy lives, wholly devoted to you. Help us to be more in love with Jesus every day. By your Spirit, be at work in our hearts, shaping us, making us holy. May your grace be the fragrance of our lives, individually and together as a church. Father, here in the middle of Kenilworth, in the middle of England, would you let your glory be seen? We are not a great people. You are a great God. Would you use us, Father, to make your name known to this town, to this county, to this nation.
for your glory, Father. We know ultimately you will be glorified in both salvation and in judgment. But Father, as those who you have had mercy on, those whom you have saved, Father, we wish you would do it more. We long that you would save more our families, our friends, our colleagues, our neighbors. Be merciful, God, to those who, just like us, do not deserve it. Amen. Amen. I invite uh, John and uh, Lucy, Richard and uh, Kieran to lead us in song. We're going to sing, O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. You rose and the grave and death are conquered. You broke our bonds of sin and shame. May all our days bring glory to your name.